Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder, a founder that left academia to really, you know, like execute on what he thought was a really interesting solution to bring to market. You know, it really involves data and and also, you know, like there's a really interesting financing rounds that they have done. But I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Peter Bailey's welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So, Peter, so you were born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. How was how was life growing up there? Uh, Omaha is a great place to grow up. Uh, there's not a lot that goes on in Omaha relative to some of the bigger cities in the states, but um, there's a lot of space, lots of uh, lots of uh, places to go do things like light off model rockets and uh, lots of basements to play music in. So. Uh, on the whole, pretty good. I always knew there was a bigger world out there, and and so, um, but it was nice to grow up somewhere where where it felt pretty, uh, you know, calm. You could do whatever you wanted, uh, and people were really nice, and friendly. And obviously, the place where Warren Buffett is, right? Exactly. So Warren Buffett is probably our most famous export. There's a big like indie rock uh, scene in the early 2000s that sort of petered out. So those were the two things that in high school we were best known for, and now I think it's just Warren Buffett. <laughs> got it so why why for example like uh, being there you know i'm sure that life is super comfortable and easy you decide to perhaps pack the bags and and do you know computer science in a place like harvard yeah it's a good question um i actually had a really fantastic math teacher in uh in undergrad or not undergrad she's i'm always one like i still call myself a grad student even though i'm not a grad student anymore all right so in high school i had a great uh math teacher who, as part of the curriculum, had us read some, like, I don't know if it's extra credit, or I think he just had the entire class read uh, a bunch of, like, books and research papers about, like, uh, there's a book called Chaos by this guy James Glick that talks about how chaos theory formed and how it relates to differential equations. And we had basically one of the craziest, like, advanced calculus classes I've, I've heard of. And, um, and it, not only were a bunch of people in this one book that made a big influence on me on the East Coast, uh, a bunch of folks at MIT, but also... Um, it just seemed like there was so much going on in these universities outside of, uh, outside of Nebraska. Nebraska is a great university system for what it's worth, but it seemed like a lot of the action was, was, was outside and, and, um, 
I, in terms of computers, I actually like never took a computer science class, but again, this one math teacher who encouraged us to read about fractals and uh, Mandelbrot sets and stuff. We basically, um, I basically ended up writing a bunch of Python programs to plot these things in ASCII in like junior year of high school. I thought it was so cool. I had no idea how to write programs, but I was able to build these kind of mathematical visualizations. And uh, once I got to college, I just figured oh, I'll take a CS class and the rest is kind of history. So then you kind of like go into this track to to really be in academia and, you know, you, you went then to, to Berkeley to do your doctorate and, and then, you know, you're going to, you're going to Stanford, you know, how, how do you land in Stanford? Uh, I had a lot of great mentorship along the way. Uh, that's, that's, that's one big part of it. I'm really fortunate about, but I mean, I think I've always been interested in this, in this kind of intersection between um, what the theory says should be possible and what people actually um want to do with computer systems and it we're in this kind of funny like phase of uh computing where a lot of the really low-hanging fruit has been picked like uh some of the fundamental results in distributed computing like what's possible and impossible about say reaching agreement on a distributed network um and even some of the stuff in you know computational complexity like just a lot of low-hanging fruit's been picked but um and so in some sense like academia a lot of the easy problems are solved and it's kind of funny there's not a lot of fields in academia where where um you know they're like 50 years old and have the impact they do in in on society um so compared to like math where you've had you know literally you know, thousands of years of study um but nevertheless like the way in which people continue to apply computing seems to always break the conventional models so like my doctoral work was basically looking at forever using NoSQL databases Part of the reason they were using them is because they always guaranteed a response. And when you deploy them across data centers, they're very quick to respond. And it turned out this is like a very particular um, network model, which the conventional literature didn't necessarily apply. And we were able to like take the old theory and apply it to this new setting. And it turned out you could get computers to do things that that historically never been able to do without communication and kind of coordination-free setting. So the long story short is like a lot of the low-hanging fruit in computer like computer science theory has been picked, but the actual application to to real problems and systems in the world continues to be a really fun space to play in because people keep finding you know more and interesting and creative ways to to do things with computers that that the models don't exactly line up. And I really like that gritty intersection between what the textbooks say and what people are trying to do with with systems. Very cool. And obviously, when when how old were you when you landed in Stanford as a as a professor as an assistant professor? Uh, good question. I think I was 25 when I accepted the offer and 26 when I showed up. Wow. So you were probably one of the youngest uh, professors there, right? Definitely. I started. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I gave me the benefit of the doubt, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think the nice thing about academia, um, you know, especially in a field that moves as fast as CS is there's, there's definitely some really greats of, in the field, you know, like, you know, Mike Stonebaker is an amazing database systems researcher, but you know, even guys like Mike have to stay on top of the box. The field moves so fast. And so, um, you know, got a great group of students to work with and we're able to, you know, raise funding, do the research we wanted and kind of jump off to the races. So Stanford's been a really supportive place. And talking about research, so you had the research project done. Can you tell us about this research project? Yeah, definitely. So so our goals in Dawn were kind of twofold. One was I love working with other researchers. And I think it's like the best part of being in academia is working with other super smart people. 
you got a bunch of really great grad students, a bunch of really awesome faculty. So we wanted to figure out what could we do in, in everything from data to computer systems to hardware uh, that would make a big impact on a multi-year scale. Um, so we partnered up with Matei Zaharia, who had started Spark and was one of my colleagues uh, at Stanford, Chris Ray, who's a pioneer in machine learning and machine learning interfaces, and Kunle Olokoten, who's a hardware pioneer, built the first some of the first multi-threaded processors. And we basically said, what can we do as a team if we, if we teamed up? So it's kind of a no-brainer to do that, uh, to work with some really smart folks and, and, and my colleagues. And then the question is, what do we go work on? And at the time, especially back in you know, 2015, we were still kind of in the heyday of all these machine learning competitions where people are getting like better and better accuracy on benchmarks like ImageNet. And it seemed like you know, accuracy is the only kind of uh, uh, important metric to optimize for, uh, simplifying a little bit. And we started to ask the question, well, what would it mean not just to try to make models more accurate, but what does it mean to make models more usable? Right. Even within, you know, you go talk to folks like uh, like Brain at Google or you talk to some of the teams at, at, at Facebook. It's certainly clear they have one of the most intense and rich concentrations of PhDs working on some of the hardest problems of computer science at scale in the history of humanity. But the trade off is there's, you know, if you look at these organizations as a whole, even like FANG scale organizations, only a very small fraction of the people uh, inside of these organizations have access to ML talent and data science talent and the toolkit by and large, even for very profitable, you know, large businesses, well, that's something from like, you know, Google Play uh, to Facebook Messenger, you know, it's still kind of its infancy in terms of making machine learning not just accurate, but but usable. And the, the standard kind of software engineering practices around developing, building, shipping, monitoring models were, were really still remain in their infancy. And so we said, as a, as a team, what can we do full stack uh, building out systems for usable machine learning? Uh, which was the kernel of this five-year Dawn project. Very cool. So then, so then, what happens next? Yeah. So you let many flowers bloom. Our commitment in Dawn was we would get kind of some of the best and most forward-looking industrial partners to help fund our research. So we had a really great slate of, of industrial sponsors uh, who would subsequently, in, in, in return, fund basically open-source software development in this space of, of usable machine learning. So we had work that continues to this day on new interfaces for collecting large amounts of training data. Uh, there's a project called Snorkel that's seen really wide adoption, including at Google. They wrote some papers uh, recently improving quality of Google Ads, uh, but also working with folks in the med school and so on. Uh, we had work on uh, improving the performance of data science pipelines, new compiler efforts. There's a project called Weld. Um, some of my work and kind of where my where a lot of my uh, time and energy went was looking at actually this problem of structured data. So the most valuable data in the world, despite what you might expect from deep learning, is not in images or in text, but it's in giant tables. And it's in warehouses like Snowflake and Redshift and BigQuery. And so a large fraction of my work as part of Dawn was how do you enable everyday line of business users who are tracking metrics like engagement and activation and, and churn Using on top of the structured data, how do you let them use this data more effectively and efficiently? And um, uh, spent a bunch of time working working on that, and ultimately uh, that took me to CSU. And that obviously is CSU, your your the business that you're running now. So so I know that uh, obviously for you, one of your biggest decisions, you know, was uh, leaving academia, right? So uh, here you are, you know, at the, one of the best universities in the world. I mean, for me, when it comes, for example, to entrepreneurship, is my number one, the, the one that I would definitely pick number one. Uh, but here you are, 
one of the youngest uh, fellows there, you know, the students could be, you know, even, even, even older than you. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you know, everything takes a different course here. I mean, you literally make the decision to leave academia behind and to go at uh, building and scaling your own business. So tell us when does uh, CISO really become tangible for you and really the option that, that you said, hey, I really need to pay more attention to this and perhaps this is what's going to be my next phase. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the way that Stanford works is they basically give every faculty member, you know, two years to go on leave out of every seven to basically work on whatever you want. And so a bunch of famous folks probably heard of, you know, Andrew Ings, Daphne Kohlner, uh, Sebastian Thrun. Um, it's a pretty well-trod um, path to take this time off and, and, and go and, and build something. I think what you've seen increasingly though in recent years is a much more common model where you'll partner with like a business operator and, you know, you use your day a week of consulting time to basically go and, and build a, a company that way. And for me, um, long story short, I just felt like there was such a compelling need in the market and it was very, you know, the, the business, everything from business model to go to market packaging, uh, technology, wasn't just going to be a plug and play, better, faster, cheaper um, business model where we could easily drop in a, a business operator. And so I, I said, you know, on my on my deathbed, you know, uh, when I look back, do I want to have done the safe thing of spending, you know, twenty percent of my time on this thing, or do I want to go two feet in uh, and build a company from scratch? And and for me, the itch was just big enough there that I had to go and do it. And 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 so kind of for context here, um, I, you know, what we had built at Stanford was essentially a set of technologies that would enable line of business owners, like let's say you're a product manager. So a good concrete example is, you know, some of the product managers who ran uh, the Skype teams at Microsoft get all this data about uh, calls placed worldwide. And they look at, you know, metrics like how many calls are placed uh, today versus yesterday, or, you know, what's the quality of service now versus in the past. And there's literally, you know, uh, hundreds of different factors that can influence quality of service, like uh, what phone did they, what's the call, what's the call placed on, what was the application version, what's the ISP, and so on. These factors are always changing. And so we came up with new techniques and algorithms for basically uh, finding the root causes um, and essentially the key drivers behind metrics like quality of service. So hypothetically, you might say, you know, uh, given ISP, um, rolled out a change to its network configuration. And as a result, you know, Android Galaxy S10 devices are experiencing lower than usual quality of service. And you would never have found that in a million years if you spent the time manually going looking at this. And so we had built prototypes that let these users, including some of the folks at the Skype team, so Microsoft was a big um, partner in the early days of our research here, uh, basically helping people answer this question of why. Why are my metrics changing? And happy to go into more detail here, but essentially we found that if we could do this at Microsoft scale or Facebook scale, we wrote papers with Google about a similar uh, techniques to answer this question of why are my key metrics changing? And it worked for these FANG scale companies. Well, there was very likely a massive set of users who could who could also benefit from this technology that we wouldn't necessarily reach just by doing more research on campus and making things you know better, faster, cheaper. And what were the typical metrics where, let's say, like for example, like a Skype or let's say like a Facebook would be more intrigued, you know, about learning more? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the broader trend we've seen, which is really interesting, is, you know, inside of a modern, any, any really modern organization, anyone but like the very, very late adopters of technology, people have defined OKRs and KPIs for their business 
if it's marketing, I look at activation, retention, churn, you know, lifetime value. Uh, if it's someone saying product, I'm look at engagement, uh, quality of service. I might look at, you know, adoption of new features. If it's finance, I'm going to look at margin and I'm going to look at uh, various measures of efficiency and revenue. And like, it's almost become ubiquitous within, within a, a typical organization, especially enterprise to, to collect and track you know, massive numbers of metrics. Like typically, you know, within a given team, you'll have like maybe a, a weekly standup and each team will be responsible and we're tracking, you know, five, uh, typically no more than 10 metrics that they, that they care about that pertain to their, you know, steady state business and also kind of key compelling events like product launches or new campaigns or so on. Um, and so what we found was this data was actually coming from these data warehouses, right? Uh, they, all, they, they always really have, been stored in data warehouses, like a lot of this organizational level data, but because it's gotten so much cheaper to collect and store this data because of the rise of the cloud in particular, um, they were able to track a lot more, a lot more data than, than, than before. And so to answer your question directly, you know, it's basically every line of business inside of a modern organization that's, that's tracking these, these metrics. And they're all derived from basically data warehouses like Snowflake. Got it. So then we see, so how do you guys make money? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really interesting. Um, a lot of kind of AI ML startups will kind of promise the world. It's not even startups, too. It's the big players. Like, oh, you know, buy auto ML and we'll automate your data science team, you know. And, and the reality is from a fundamental statistics perspective and, and even from a research perspective, I think it's still an open question how, how and whether you can do this. Um, what we do for CSU and like the core value provide to our customers is exactly what, what we researched and have subsequently scaled out to a much more powerful backend and scalable interface. Um, basically, we help people understand one simple question, which is why are my key metrics changing? So, if I'm a if I'm say a uh, marketing operations lead and I try and I and I'm watching a metric like activations over time, like new product activations, uh, it's very easy. You know, any any number of BI tools can tell me why is this metric changing. Uh, can tell you can tell me how is this metric changing. So, activations are down two percent this week versus last week. And with CC, we're not trying to replace these dashboarding and reporting tools because there's a ton of them and they all work pretty well and they do about the same thing. What we want to do is we want to basically replace the task of digging deep into the data and understanding what's driving this metric. Activations are down by 2%, but the reason why it's down by 2% is that we actually saw a drop-off in uh, premium subscribers from the mobile channel. And we saw an increase in standard subscribers from uh, in-store purchases, right? And basically breaking down the many thousands to millions of factors behind any individual metric and making it interpretable for an end user to, to understand it. So, you know, take it for granted today. You can like search trillions of documents on the internet uh, and get a great answer back, you know, for free with services like Google today. But there's like virtually no service today that can do the equivalent for structured data inside a private organization. So our value prop is helping people understand once they've defined key metrics, why are these metrics changing in seconds? And then as the data continues to change, keeping them up to date as to what's most important. Really interesting. And, and how much, I mean, obviously this, to build this thing up, you know, it requires uh, quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, so we just closed a Series B led by... NEA, so Pete Sonsini at NEA, with participation from our existing investors at Andreessen Horowitz, so Ben Horowitz, and also the Andreessen Horowitz Cultural Leadership Fund and uh, Green Bay Ventures. So that round was 
52.5 million. And so we've raised 66.7 million total. So 66.7 million total in, in less than two years. I mean, how, how the hell do you do this, uh, Peter? Well, I think uh, there are kind of two, two factors. One is the market for this type of analytics is massive, right? I mean, everyone wants enterprise AIML and no one knows what it looks like. And a lot of people are trying it. And, and there's a lot of um, uh, broken, a lot, a lot of kind of um, uh, lofty promises and, and poor execution here. And so I think we have a pretty unique perspective informed by our work that's essentially very pragmatic. I mean, customers always ask us, can we? Can you do time series forecasting? Can you do predictions for me? Can you clean up my data for me? And we say, no, no, and no. We, we do, we're going to do one thing incredibly well, which is we're going to tell you why your metrics are changing. We're going to be the best in the world at this diagnostic analytics. And I think that very clear perspective coupled by our early track record uh, has made raising capital, especially in this environment where there's massive market demand, very uh, uh, attractive. Um, and, and we've had some great people take take the bet that we can deliver on this. Um, I think the other thing too, though, is you know why would we raise this money? And and this is another reason why I'm back to uh, actually making the decision to, to go full-time on this myself is this is a product that I don't think can be built by just a team of machine learning researchers or just a team of database systems researchers or, or database systems engineers or just UI. I mean, this is a product experience that requires, you know, combination of world-class execution and machine learning, data engineering, and UX and product. And to do that and to attract that type of talent and to scale out and really achieve our full potential is a relatively capital-intensive affair. And so um, this capital is really letting us take a big swing while iterating very, very quickly and very um, uh, diligently and in a focused way with with our uh, early user base. And it seems obvious really that uh, Andreessen Horowitz you know, has been a, a really big sponsor now when it comes to really leading the rounds and, and so forth. And And I've seen, you know, Ben Horowitz really like literally going into labs of universities, you know, based on other founders that I've spoken with and just like giving like 15 million to just just like that to, to something that, that is not really tangible. So so how did you guys come across? I mean, was it Ben Horowitz or or, or, or how did you guys, you know, really get in touch with Andreessen Horowitz? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned, we had some pretty interesting deployments of the research we were doing well in advance of even incorporating the company. And this was stuff that we were basically just giving away for free and trying to get people to adopt it and had some really interesting use cases in um, uh, online services and telecom and um, some some manufacturing use. We, we, we kind of proven out the technology uh, could work. And the big question, well, what would be the business around this and how would we reach the maximum number of people? And so we spent a lot of time actually with a bunch of um, you know, friendly folks, uh, largely in the VC space, talking to potential customers and understanding what this landscape looks like and figuring out what would be our unique, you know, differentiator, if anything, to go and basically build a, build a company in the space. Um, and so it took a while to get conviction around, uh, the space and, and understanding what, what the structure of the company would look like and, and what we wanted to raise and so on. And then as soon as we were ready to go and do that, we had a pretty fast, um, initial fundraise for the series a and where's intro to Ben through um, one of my mentors and former grad school advisors, Ali Godsi at Databricks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so when I met Ben, you know, my philosophy is I have a lot of um, opinions and some expertise in, in data. 
but at each step along this journey, I, I want to work with the best possible people who can help complement my my strengths and weaknesses. And the ability to partner with someone who's not just a great investor, but has actually been an operator himself and been in the trenches and and understands all of the uh, blood, sweat, and tears behind uh, doing the deadlift of starting a company from scratch. Like uh, Ben's just a phenomenal partner, and and the references that I'd gotten from my network, everyone from Ali to um, other folks at Databricks. Uh, talking to uh, the folks from Nasira, I mean, it was clear that Ben was a fantastic partner from from this outset, starting the company with zero lines of code written, zero customers, and uh, huge market potential. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it's amazing because when when I was mentioning, you know, that statement earlier, it's actually from from my. I remember uh, when when Ali Gotzi came came to the show as well. You know, he was sharing that story when you know he was also. Uh, a researcher and and Ben literally you know saw what they were doing and you know he just he just knew that was going to be really big so it reminded me you know your story you know I thought it was similar so so it's funny that that you mentioned uh, Ali no so uh, so really cool so then how I mean investors always talk talk about the market you know like if your market is big that's also going to uh, either limit you know for the positive or for the negative the potential returns that they might get from from their investments how big you know do you think your market uh, could be. Yeah, it's a great question. It's one we get a lot, um, and, I, and I think, I you know, to put really bluntly, right? If you think about what's going on, just look at it, just look at Snowflake as example. Um, so Snowflake just going up in the right, uh, you know, gearing up for just a bunch of mega rounds, gearing up for IPO. Like it's clear that the that enterprise use of storage is not slowing down anytime soon, um, and if in 10 years, the question I always ask myself is, you know, if in 10 years, the best thing we have to make use of all this structured data, like more data than was online when Google launched, uh, is, in one, is it in one of these typical enterprise warehouses. Like if the best thing we have for making use of this data is Microsoft Excel, which is like probably the number one best-selling application of all time. Uh, and certainly, I know best-selling will say largest economic impact. Um, clearly doesn't scale to Snowflake scale. Uh, or a BI tool which is basically the same form factor that we had since like 1995 uh, or it's Python notebooks, which I think more and more people are coding. That's great. But I don't think everyone in the world should have to code in order to make use of this data. Like something's gone horribly wrong. That's where we end up in 10 years, given the ascendancy of this, of this data availability in the enterprise. And so um, I think there's just a Microsoft scale opportunity or Google scale. You, you, you pick in terms of making use of this data, at scale and everyday decision-making inside a business. And I think realistically, the majority of the world's businesses will be making data-informed decisions using next-generation data tooling like CSU uh, in the next 10 years. Now, are we the ones that capture that market, like to enable every business operator to leverage all of the data at their fingertips? I don't know. But I think we have a good shot at making a big dent there. And... Um, I think every company, you know, I haven't talked about every company becoming an AI company. I don't think every company needs AI, but I think that to stay competitive and relevant, every company is going to be able to use data. And I think today's tools, you're, you're already starting to see this in terms of a lot of the homegrown efforts and a lot of the high tech tech companies. They just aren't up to aren't up to task. And there's an opportunity for a basic clean slate redesign. And um, that's that's what we're playing for, essentially. And that's also why you know we've raised this capital. And obviously, as well, uh, for a business of this nature, probably the 
the biggest hurdles might be really on on creating and developing the sales team now because sales for enterprise is a it's a beast so tell us about how you're seeing this yeah totally yeah so one of the things that's been awesome to work with on with ben on and i think he's since the early days he's been really um helpful with and, and really a key proponent of is you know one of our one of the key challenges we face in the market is just being really focused about who we target who, who we work with as early customers because if you tell someone hey I'm going to give you a magic box. It will tell you why your key metrics are changing. Do you want it? Do you want this? Do you want to try this? Everyone's going to say yes, right? I mean, it's just like, why wouldn't you want this clear, clear value if it does what it says on the box? And I think we have a, from the technology perspective, a, a clear advantage and, and, and insight into how to build this and a great team is going out and build it. So let's just say we can do that. Um, how do you prioritize when that's such a massive market? Um, and so one of the biggest pieces of emphasis in our early stage you know, go to market kind of learning to date has been how do we qualify what a great user looks like? Um, and, and really narrowing our target to find people who are able to adopt very quickly, who have invested in the technology required, uh, so that we can get started, you know, do a pilot in, in an afternoon, as opposed to a three month implementation period. And, and then most importantly, can actually take action on, uh, on the results we're giving them. So just to give like a flavor of what we essentially have really narrowed in on, we work with people who know exactly who their customers are. Um, so a good example of the Samsung's one of our uh, public uh, uh, customers. Uh, they, they obviously sell phones and they know what device has been sold on what carriers and so on. Um, an example of a customer that would not be a great fit right now is Coca-Cola, right? Coca-Cola sells to distributors and then they sell to folks like 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven sells their products for that. They have no idea you know, uh, who's, who's, who's buying. And so Coca-Cola can track how many sales they've shipped. They have no idea if it's people in the Midwest, if it's repeat customers, uh, what makes those customers who are great customers actually great. Uh, so, so that's a big part of this. We're cloud native. And so we qualify very hard on people's willingness to uh, adopt cloud software. And my thesis is that five years, everyone's going to be in the cloud. Um, and the ones that aren't in the cloud, we're not going to be the ones to bring them there. Um, and then, and then I think that one of the big ones that I think is overlooked in the space, right? It's a super crowded space. Everyone talks about insights and getting value from data. It's like almost like a, you know, it's just totally noisy. You know, the reality is I think when you talk about insights from data, I think insights are bullshit, right? You know, if I tell you something insightful that doesn't change your behavior, you know, it's like a tree falls in the forest, um, doesn't matter, right? And so we really try to find people who are able to take action based on the results we'd show them, change their marketing campaigns, change their product strategy, change their business operations. And so we have a pretty tight way to qualify in and qualify out prospects and a strong belief that over time, the number of people who qualify is going to go up rather than down. Got it. I mean, one thing that, that, that really, you know, is clear to me is that one of the issues that, that companies really experience, especially early stage companies that could be fatal is that for the most part, they make decisions based out of assumptions. And I think that right now, basically what you guys are doing is, is removing that completely. Is that right? You mean for our customers or, or ourselves? Yeah, I mean, like, like, like I, I, guess, I guess for your customers now, you know, like you're literally now able to show them what's happening. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, I think, you, I think you're absolutely right. So in a nutshell, like data-driven decision-making is not a new idea, right? So people have been making data-driven decisions since the beginning of modern accounting. You just had profit and loss as your two indicators, and they're pretty lagging <laughs> in terms of indicators. Um, 
the types of customers that right. we work with and the users we work with have already made the decision to track leading indicators like engagement and activation and and uh, margins and so on. But they lack the not the aptitude, but really the resources and the time to go and dig into all their data and figure out what is my data telling me about how I'm performing operationally. And and this the sad part of this is as as you know businesses enter into more and more competitive environments. And as data continues to update over time, the answer to what is most important and what's working well and what's not working well, to do more of what's working well and to change what's not working well, it's constantly changing. And so, you know, the value add and the and the promise for, for our customers, and especially the ones who are particularly successful with the platform, is exactly what you said. You know, I'm already doing a bunch of stuff on a daily basis or a weekly basis in terms of, say, how I'm running my marketing team. But if I can be 10% more informed by knowing exactly what has changed in the fundamentals of my marketing pipeline over the last you know, uh, 12 hours, the last 24 hours, I'm going to be that much more informed in order to make these decisions. And if you think about, you know, talk about computer science, coming back to our earlier conversation, computer science only been around for 50 years. Data at this scale is only around for the last 15 to 20 years, depending on which organization you're, you're talking with, right? It makes sense that we have this decision-making process, which is based on kind of gut instinct and um, more or less, you know, what we, what, you know, which side of the bed we woke up on. Um, and in many cases, gut instinct's really valuable and we don't want to replace that. I think that's one of the fallacies with a lot of AI ML products. They're like, you know, like, oh, you don't need your humans anymore. You're going to show up in the marketing teams in the cloud. We really think that, think of this type of analytics as a way to, to augment human decision-making and really check some of those assumptions and biases and beliefs using the data um, in real time. Very cool. And one of the uh, questions that I typically ask uh, the folks that we have on the show is that, I mean, obviously for you, I mean, this year has been has been unbelievable. I mean, what a what a rocket ship of a ride, uh, Peter. Uh, but obviously, you know, it has probably come with with a lot of of different lessons and learnings, right? Because when you're building things at at this type of hyper growth, it's uh, the 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 learning and and the, the speed in which you learn is is remarkable. So I guess now, if you had the opportunity to Let's say go back in time, no, and and still where you were, perhaps uh, at that point where you were about to make the decision of of going on a leave, you know, from Stanford and really launching Sisu. Uh, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, and why, knowing what you know now? It's a good question. I think that one of the things we've done a good job of is keeping a really high bar and building out a, an amazing um, team. Where uh, we've 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 really brought together different disciplines. You know, we had Michi as our second um, hire. She basically joined from the Twitter uh, uh, timeline team, where she led some of the UX redesign on the in order tweets to out of order tweets. And pairing her together uh, with some like Vlad, who was you know the top PhD program in the country at, at Berkeley Machine Learning, having him drop out, putting this in the room together at early stage. That I would definitely do that. Um, again, I, and, I, and I think the thing I would try to do more of is, is even focus even more on hiring. I mean, we're we're pretty far along um, for a you know I don't know less than eighteen months in as a company, uh, but I would love to have, find even more Vlad's and Michi's uh, to work with. And in some sense, you know, we're at twenty five now and growing quite a bit, but almost investing even more in terms of talent, um, even getting a head of talent, which we're hiring for now, but getting one in, you know, even as one of the first you know five hires would be fantastic. Because I think one of the things I talk about with Ben a lot is it's about you know people product, profits, right, in that order. And I feel so fortunate. One of the things I've really enjoyed relative to, to being on campus, I've loved getting to know and work with people who are truly, you know, masters of their craft in areas other than, you know, core CS. And 
I feel like hiring, you can obviously take this to an extreme and overhire and have a bunch of problems with this, but I think investing even more into hiring and scaling the team uh, uh, faster uh, uh, would have been, would have been great. Um, and so, I mean, maybe, maybe if I went back and played that, I'd be back on the show today and saying, Oh, I wish I hadn't hired that fast. Um, cause there are, there's a lot of special parts of culture that take time to build and develop, but I do feel like, um, especially now with so much opportunity in front of us, it's, it's, it's always going to be a prioritization problem, but I do feel like we probably could have hired a, a little bit quicker. Um, and the other thing I'd probably do is spend more time with my wife. Um, <laughs> uh, cause there's a lot of, there's just always more stuff to do. And there's, um, only so many weekends uh, uh, to spend time with your loved ones. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. So uh, really cool, Peter. So I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, love to love to chat. Uh, my name is, my email is uh, peter at cc.ai. Uh, you can sign up for a, a trial on our website. Uh, you take a look at cc.ai. Um, and uh, yeah, I would love to, love to get feedback if you're interested, uh, trying to figure out why your metrics are changing. Um, we're, we're, we're really excited to talk to people, especially folks who are really within their own organizations. There's a big kind of, we see frequently some of the folks who are most successful, uh, uh, partners with us. They're really inside their organizations. They realize they have this massive store of data at their disposal. And there's, they're almost like change agents within these organizations trying to change their way their, their companies are using, working with, uh, thinking about data. And so, uh, if this is resonating, would love to, love to follow up and, 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 and hear, you know, where you're using data effectively, where you'd like to use it more effectively and, uh, see if CSU can help. Amazing. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, uh, I really enjoy the show and, and uh, appreciate your, your time and, and questions. It's been a lot of fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.